Hello and welcome back to Interpreting India. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host, Rudro Chaudhary, and this week, we're taking a look at the tensions between Russia and Ukraine. More than 100,000 Russian troops are currently stationed along Ukraine's northern and eastern borders. The United States has deployed close to 2,000 additional troops to Poland. Thousand more troops have been moved from Germany to Romania along Ukraine's western borders. As far as Russia is concerned, 30,000 troops have been deployed to Belarus, where they begin military exercises on the 10th of February. French President Emmanuel Macron met with President Putin on the 7th of February, hoping to find still a diplomatic solution to the current impasse. On the other hand, President Putin and President Xi Jinping held their 38th personal meeting in China. In this episode of Interpreting in India, we'll take a closer look at both the current impasse and the geopolitics shaping the same. What are Moscow's demands? What has the Biden administration missed in this game of Sino-Russian go? Is there any room for a renewed strategic framework between Russia and the West? Is another Helsinki final act even possible? To help us navigate some of these questions, we have with us today the one and only Dmitry Chenin. Dimitri is the director of the Carnegie Moscow Center. He chairs the Research Council at the Foreign and Security Policy Program. In 1993, he retired from the Russian army. He served in the Soviet and Russian armed forces between 1972 and 93, including as a liaison officer in the external relations branch of the group of Soviet forces and as a staff member of the delegation to the US-Soviet nuclear arms talks in Geneva in the 1980s and early 90s. He also taught at the War Studies Department of the Military Institute. Dimitri, welcome to Interpreting India. We are delighted to have you with us. Dimitri, let me ask the first question. Let me keep it pretty broad. There are many fast moves taking place at this time. President Macron in Russia, President Putin in China, more troops being deployed on both sides of Ukraine's borders. Can you lay out what exactly is happening as you see it? Well, uh, in my view, uh, President Putin is now using unorthodox instruments to pursue his goal of changing the architecture of European security from the present structure dominated by the United States and very much centered on NATO to a bipolar, if you like, or two-pillar structure, which is essentially based on agreements, understandings, etc., between two pillars. One is the United States and NATO, the other one being uh, the Russian Federation. I think that Putin, um, having been frustrated with his attempts to um, get a response to his arguments about the need to uh, take Russian security concerns seriously, has come to the conclusion that his uh, counterparts, or if you like, opponents in the United States, would only pay attention if uh, you use the language of force backed by force. And to that 
goal, he amassed uh, a sizable number of Russian forces along the border of Ukraine. And he got the attention of Washington, and he engaged the American president in a discussion precisely on the issues that were topmost on his mind, not so much Ukraine, but the issue of European security and Russia's role in the European security architecture. And uh, the diplomatic context that uh, have followed Putin's conversations with Biden at the end of last year, the meetings in Geneva, Brussels, uh, Vienna, again in Geneva, the visits that you have just mentioned and more, suggest that uh, his plan has worked to a degree. And uh, he managed to engage not just the Americans, but also the Europeans in a serious conversation about Russian security concerns. That's where we are. So, Dimitri, if I could just ask you on this, is a few days ago, Sergei Lavrov said, he says, there are differences in the understanding of the principle of equal and indivisible security. Now, the grammar is quite interesting, given that it's the kind of grammar that one would read if you were looking at the Helsinki Final Act of the 1970s or the Russia Founding Act, the 1997 NATO Agreement or the OSCE Summits Agreement and so on and so forth. But is that the model that Putin is aspiring to, some sort of a formal process by which um, there's a clear understanding of spheres of influence? Well, it's not so much about spheres of influence. I think it's about um, a margin of security or something like that. Uh, for a long time, and Putin has been president or has been the uh, the topmost leader of Russia for the past 20 plus years. So through virtually all that time, uh, the process of uh, NATO enlargement was uh, uh, was being actively pursued so that the uh, Atlantic Alliance, which stood at 16 at the time of the end of the Cold War, 16 member states, has expanded to include uh, altogether 30 countries. So 14 countries joined after the downfall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Some of those countries are in the vicinity of Russia, say the Baltic states. Some are fairly close, such as Poland, Romania. Uh, since 2008, there has been an offer to Ukraine and Georgia that both border on Russia to join NATO at an unspecified date. And NATO has made it very clear that they want the door to the alliance to remain open. Now, to Putin, uh, this is too close for comfort, particularly regarding Ukraine. Uh, and Putin has been trying to um, send the message to Washington that admitting Cuba, excuse me, that's, that's important, admitting Ukraine to NATO would be tantamount to the Soviet Union during the Cold War using Cuba as a military base against the United States. Uh, 
So it is as intolerable to the Russian leadership as uh, Cuba's hosting Soviet missiles was intolerable to the leadership in the John F. Kennedy era in the United States. But uh, clearly, people have uh, different views of themselves and of others, and uh, they do not buy Mr. Putin's arguments. So what he is basically telling with so many forces on the Ukrainian border that any conflict that involves Ukraine and Russia would turn into a global conflict and potentially into a global uh, nuclear war if Ukraine were uh, challenging Russian borders that it doesn't recognize, for example, as in Crimea, uh, while at the same time being a member of NATO. So that's Putin's argument. And uh, the argument, as I said, is backed by force. So it has to be treated seriously. And in order to be treated seriously, just like in any situation of deterrence, you have to impress on your, on your counterpart or your opposite number that you are fully uh, capable of using that force and that you have absolute resolve to use it when uh, you think that's, that's the only choice that's left to you. On the other side, Dimitri, on the Biden administration side, there seems to be a, a dichotomy because on the one hand, it, it appears to, to many of us on the outside that the administration was very quick to whip up the threat that they perceived Russia as posing and the likelihood of war. But at the same time, it would appear that Biden and the administration as a whole wasn't as quick to pick up how serious this was for Putin. Do you agree with that dichotomy? And what's your reading of the way in which the administration has dealt with this, this particular crisis? Well, I think it's a bit hard for me to uh, to analyze the, the U.S. administration. I think it's best done by our American colleagues. But uh, the way it is seen from Russia is that uh, uh, for the administration, that was both uh, what Putin was doing was both a challenge and an opportunity. On the challenge side, the administration certainly could not tolerate a Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, that would have resulted in uh, a quick defeat of the Ukrainian forces and, and the Russian takeover of Ukraine. Coming just months after the uh, very messy and uh, ugly in some aspects uh, withdrawal of the United States forces from Afghanistan, that would have dealt a very powerful blow to the uh, Biden administration and its chances both in the midterms and in the 2024 election. On the opportunities side, uh, Russia's saber rattling uh, was seen as a, uh, as a good tool to uh, reconsolidate the NATO alliance, to build a common front against Russia, to uh, make sure that uh, uh, NATO speaks one language with Russia, uh, excuse me, with the United States, and that uh, uh, the countries that uh, uh, were considered to be quote-unquote soft on Russia, such as Germany and France, uh, would have to take uh, a much 
tougher position vis-a-vis Moscow. So the administration was torn between those two things, uh, the challenge and the opportunity. In my view, the administration does not have uh, um, a very good understanding of uh, Russia, of uh, Russian policies. I think that the view of Russia uh, over the past maybe 15 years, 20 years, has been, uh, uh, 15, I think, uh, years, has been uh, uh, distorted to suit uh, the ideological precepts, to suit uh, certain stereotypes that were built in the U.S. body politic. And uh, the Russia that uh, you see from uh, Washington is uh, often very different from the Russia that actually exists. and. Um, uh, in, in, in a situation in which being, uh, let's say, objective about Russia uh, can bring you into trouble with some powerful quarters in Washington, D.C., uh, this is inevitable. This distortion is, is clearly inevitable. Well, hopefully this crisis has served as a bit of a wake-up call for the administration, including for the verve to focus purely on China or to be hypnotized by the Indo-Pacific. But further question, uh, Dimitri, you from the very beginning have been one of the few rare voices that has been sanguine about the possibility of war. Um, You've always maintained in your writings and the interviews that you've given in the last month or so that you seem to suggest that war is less of a possibility. Are you of the same opinion now, given the fact that there are troop deployments. The Americans have moved 1,700 troops to Poland. They have rotated troops out of Germany to Romania. There's a Russian military exercise that will start this week on the 10th of February in Belarus with close to 30,000 soldiers. So are you still as sanguine about the possibility of de-escalation? Rudy, as I said before, I viewed this uh, operation by Putin as uh, essentially a tool of his diplomacy or a tool of his foreign policy. This is diplomacy by other means. Uh, 25 years ago, there was a term coined in the United States that that read coercive diplomacy. That was diplomacy with the use of force. Now, Putin is uh, using diplomacy with the threat of a use of force. That's what he's doing. Uh, I never thought that um, uh, a war against Ukraine with its uh, um, huge, well, let me say it would be seen as a huge tragedy, not only by Ukrainians and in Ukraine, but also in Russia, that would destabilize not only Ukraine, but it would uh, would would challenge the stability within Russia. The economic cost of such a war would be tremendous. Uh, and uh, this is not something that I still consider Putin to be, um, again, unlike uh, the picture that is widely spread in the Western media, I, I do not see him as reckless. I do not see him as uh, out of touch with reality. I do not see him as... Uh, as uh, you know, some some latter day uh, version of uh, you know a dictator who uh, 
who is bent on a megalomaniac dictator who is bent on uh, reconquering half of Europe. Uh, I see him as very calculating. I see him as uh, pretty level-headed on on geopolitical issues. So in my, again, my, what do I know? I can only watch, I can only analyze. I, I'm not privy to uh, the uh, private conversations that Mr. Putin is having with other people. Uh, clearly no one can read Putin's thoughts. So I can come up only with hypotheses. So my hypothesis is that he is, uh, is calculating and careful. His, the wars that he has waged, and Putin has waged several wars in his uh, tenure as president, starting with Chechnya, then there was a war uh, in Georgia, a war um, uh, with regard to Crimea, Donbass, Syria. Uh, in all those wars, uh, Putin, to me, has displayed a uh, uh, fairly good uh, calculus. Um, ruthlessness married to, um, to moderation. Um, and, uh, he was also very careful that none of those wars in which he engaged would, uh, uh, would challenge the domestic stability of Russia. He has gone through, as all of us, we all remember the, uh, the experience of Afghanistan, uh, on the, the impact of Afghanistan on the domestic situation in the Soviet Union in the 1980s. And I think that he is very, very careful not to go down that path. So uh, I never thought that the war, uh, in, against Ukraine would be on the cards, except in one case. If Putin were challenged, uh, the way he was challenged back in 2008, when Georgian President Saakashvili attacked the breakaway region of South Ossetia, his forces killed uh, several dozen Russian peacekeepers in the area. And then, of course, there was a counterpunch from the Russians, and uh, there was a defeat of the Georgians. To the West, this is a Russian aggression against Georgia. But I would I would challenge those people to describe uh, the likely action by a Western country, starting with the United States. If a Western protectorate were attacked and uh, several dozen U.S. soldiers were killed by a foreign power, a foreign country, what would the reaction be and how that war would be called? So uh, this is t- Georgia 2008 is certainly not to me a case of Russian aggression. It's something else, uh, which is interest. It's, it's interesting that a lot of people still do not, uh, do not recognize the fact for a fact. So that's, that's where I stand. That's why I, uh, I, I did not think that Putin would engage in an adventure, uh, with, uh, pot- potentially catastrophic consequences that a war, a large-scale war against Ukraine would bring. Yeah, Dimitri, I think a lot of your views would certainly strike a chord with senior analysts and diplomats in India who have spent time in Russia, who are as sanguine about the possibilities of conflict and much more hopeful about a diplomatic solution, keeping a a renewed strategic context in mind. Let me, you know, you brought up this question of coercion. 
And this is clearly, in, at least in American parlance, this would be seen as strategic coercion on the part of Putin backed by force. But equally, coercion is at the minimum a two-player game, usually a multiplayer game. On the American side and the European side, there's a raging debate around the efficacy of sanctions. Um, and this certainly came to light recently when the German chancellor met with Biden in Washington, um, given that Germany and Russia have a long-standing energy relationship and there's this pipeline which may just either go offline or go online anytime soon. Um, so I was just wondering from your perspective and from the perspective within Russia, um, how are sanctions seen? I mean, how punitive are they? How are they read? Is this really a tool in the kit box that can affect or change behavior within Russia? Or is it sort of much ado about nothing? Well, uh, I would say this. Uh, first of all, sanctions do hurt. Uh, sanctions uh, are not welcomed by people who uh, who have to deal with um, uh, with the global market in Russia. Uh, sanctions are not popular uh, in that group. S- when certain technologies cannot be imported into Russia, when um, uh, raising money becomes more difficult, when um, uh, the ruble is going down uh, occasionally, uh, and sometimes plunges, uh, to lower depths, uh, people are not amused. Uh, the ordinary people of Russia, um, they feel uh, some impact of the sanctions, but it's um, it's not totally negligible. But it's not it's certainly subcritical. Uh, you know, the the biggest uh, impact I think on the ordinary consumer in Russia was Russia itself imposing economic sanctions on the European Union when Russia just stopped importing food from the EU. Uh, and that, I think, is, uh, is, is very interesting because in the 1990s, most of the foodstuffs that you would buy in Moscow supermarkets uh, would come from elsewhere, mostly from Europe, but from other countries as well. Uh, there, there were very few Russian products in those days. Today, uh, you uh, have no European products uh, except for wines and uh, and uh, and chocolates, maybe. Uh, but um, uh, but but Russian supermarkets are well stocked with food produced within Russia. This is a measure of uh, clear, clearly a measure of success for Russia. But again, if you turn to some industrialists. Uh, uh, they will they will complain about about sanctions. Uh, where the sanctions, so they have hurt not much, but they have hurt, and in some sectors, some cases, they have hurt much stronger than in most others. Uh, that said, uh, sanctions have not been able to change Russia's uh, foreign policy. They have not been able to impact on. The decision maker, i.e. Mr. Putin, they have not been able to impact on his immediate entourage, who are all under personal, or most of them are under personal sanctions. The people who were placed under Western sanctions, some of them were were richly compensated by uh, President Putin by uh, giving them 
new opportunities within Russia to compensate for the opportuni- opportunities lost uh, in, 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 uh, in, in the rest of the world. Uh, and uh, uh, these sanctions have not produced uh, a backlash against their own government by the bulk of the Russian population. In that sense, the sanctions have not worked. Uh, but uh, you may say that the truly nuclear sanctions are yet to be imposed on Russia, like switching off SWIFT for Russia. That's the system of payments, um, stopping to deal with the Russian sovereign debt and uh, stopping uh, or severely limiting any transactions uh, uh, made in the U.S. dollar. Those sanctions would uh, certainly make a, an impact on Russia, but uh, uh, the, those sanctions would also create uh, a degree of disruption, maybe in some areas a fairly high degree of disruption in the global economy. And uh, they would again uh, hardly move the needle of Russian foreign policy uh, in the direction that uh, the United States uh, would, uh, would would wish it to move. Rather, I think Russia would go in the opposite direction. As Putin said, uh, if you uh, impose those sanctions on Russia, those quote-unquote nuclear ones, then we'll go for a complete rupture in our relations with you guys. And that is um, that is another threat that Putin is using these days. And I think it's credible. If sanctions are unlikely to have the desired effect, which is, you know, history is full of examples of how sanctions have led to some kind of a rally around the flag effect and not really been able to change behaviors, it's, of course, a mixed result. But it also complicates the transatlantic alliance and clearly the relationship that Europe has with Russia, not the least because of the dependence on energy, but also Russia's dependence on revenue from the energy that it sells sells to Europe. And here, um, Dimitri, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of President Macron, the role of the German Chancellor, who was seen very much as the peace envoys in this particular crisis, one going out to Washington, one spending over five hours in conversations with Putin. What is the, what is the next step? So what's the next logical step once these European leaders come back into Europe? Well, President Macron, having uh, spent time in Moscow, uh, has flown to Kiev, and uh, he will spend time with the Ukrainian leaders. Uh, his mission is, uh, as I understand, to, do, to come up with, um, or rather to share his ideas with both the Russian and Ukrainian leaderships on ways to... Um, uh, get the uh, uh, Minsk process, the uh, process over the link to the implementation of the uh, so-called Minsk agreements on Donbass in 2015 that offered the path to reintegration of uh, the part of Donbass that's outside of Kiev's control with the rest of Ukraine on certain terms. And uh, uh, France and Germany are the two uh, guarantors uh, of the uh, Minsk Agreement's implementation. Actually, uh, the German Chancellor is expected in Moscow next week uh, after his visit to Washington. Uh, 
from the Russian perspective, the most important player in the issues of European security is the United States of America. Uh, Russia uh, intends to uh, continue uh, talks and uh, hopefully negotiations with Washington on 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 the issues of European security. But the Europeans matter uh, in in the sense that, as I said, they are co-guarantors of the Minsk Agreement. Uh, and that, uh, as you said, Rudy, they are the two countries, and I would add Italy here and a number of others, who are uh, very much engaged with Russia economically. For Germany, for example, there is no better alternative to the Russian gas and uh, Russian natural gas that's being pumped to Germany, uh, in part uh, across uh, the Baltic Sea, in part across Ukraine and Poland, actually. Uh, the, the, the issue of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, that's a second pipeline that connects Germany and Russia across the Baltic Sea, is uh, now a, a hot issue in relations between Washington and Berlin. Washington uh, traditionally is very skeptical and suspicious toward any uh, closeness between Berlin and Moscow. That's that's been there since uh, since the end of the of, of the Second World War. Uh, to Washington, this dependence of uh, Germany on Russian gas is a strategic issue that uh, that makes Germany a less dependable Atlantic partner than uh, than other NATO countries that are not as much exposed to uh, to the Russian market. Actually, Germany still has six thousand farms. Uh, that are uh, working in Russia, that are investing in Russia, producing in Russia, and all that. Uh, France is uh, is also pretty heavily engaged, not as much as Germany, but still pretty heavily engaged. So are the Italians and, and as I said, some others. Uh, this creates uh, a degree of tension within uh, the Atlantic Alliance because essentially when the United States ex- imposes sanctions, on economic sanctions on Russia, uh, Americans understand very well that the sanctions will work to the degree that they can work only if the Europeans collaborate. If the Europeans do not collaborate, there's very little that the United States can do with regard to Russia. Uh, Minus, with, with one exception, that is the U.S. dollar transactions. Uh, apart from that, uh, you know, there's not much that the United States can physically do uh, to um, uh, to sanction Russia economically, due to the fairly small amount of uh, uh, of um, of trade that's uh, uh, that 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 that's going on between uh, Russia and 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 America. Uh, and Putin clearly uh, uses that uh, factor to to his advantage. Now, Putin, Russia. Because it's not it's not uniquely it's not personally Putin it's it's it, that's uh, that's something obvious it's it's no brainer that Russia would be using those connections to uh, to its advantage and use the Europeans as uh, uh, it's um, I wouldn't say it's advocates but as uh, as mo- as voices of moderation within the European 
within the European and, uh, and the transatlantic institutions. We're talking about Western mm. European states, not so much about Eastern European states that all bear huge historical grudges against Russia and, um, uh, whose uh, attitude to Russia is, uh, is often pretty hostile. Uh, not so much uh, in, in Western Europe, particularly in Germany, France, Italy, Austria, and some other, players, some other countries. Dimitri, just moving on from um, Europe to China, um, I'm also keeping an eye on the clock, is how do you read the recent very long joint statements that Russia and China put out following President Putin's visit to China for the Winter Olympics. And I quote, the key sentence over here, carried by almost every English language daily, is the one which says that the friendship between the two states has no limits. There are no forbidden areas of cooperation. Now, some analysts seem to read this as a renewal of Sino-Russian relations. Some see it, of course, as an evolution over the last 15 years whilst others just see this as an impact of the prevailing geopolitics of our times. Um, how do you read this relationship and what impact do you think, if any, that this that the Sino-Russian compact will have on the current impasse, or the thinking of, say, the United States in the way it deals with this crisis? Well, my reading of what happened in Beijing mm -hmm. at the opening of the Olympics uh, is that the... I call it entente between China and Russia. It's something that is way above strategic partnership and, and yet, uh, much lower and certainly different than uh, a military political alliance of the Cold War vintage, such as NATO or the Japan US, um, uh, alliance and, um, and relationship. Uh, I, I, I see these, this entente, um, moving to a somewhat new level. Uh, I would call it a, a united front against the United States. Both China and Russia are now in confrontation with the United States. And I think uh, the logic of that confrontation has led the leaders in Beijing and Moscow to come to the conclusion that it would make sense uh, from the standpoint of respectively Russian and uh, Chinese interests to collaborate more closely and coordinate more often. Uh, the long communique, uh, the long joint statement, uh, to me is um, uh, is a charter of uh, Sino-Russian uh, collaboration, Sino-Russian um, coordination uh, in the time of uh, Sino-American and uh, Russian-American confrontation. S what's what's truly important? What what what's struck me when I was reading this was not the phrase that you've quoted. It's a very catchy phrase, but uh, I would say it's a bit meaningless um, or, or, or very vague, at least. It's like Putin jo joking when he was asked, uh, when he asked uh, uh, a question of a, of a school student, uh, where the, the, does Russia's border end? And the school student, a good student, said, well, it, it, it ends on the Bering Strait uh, uh, that separates Russia from America. And Putin smiled and said, well, you're wrong, because Russia's borders 
do not end anywhere because it's a circle. Uh, you know, it's, um, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a good phrase, but what I was particularly struck by was the, uh, statement or the, 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 the sentence in the statement that, uh, said that China supports Russia's, uh, proposals on European security. Uh, and Russia supports China's position on Taiwan. Well, Russia supporting China's position on Taiwan, of course, is no news. R- Moscow has been supporting that position from 1949, uh, even in the worst days of the Soviet, uh, uh, Chinese, uh, Cold War, uh, confrontation, border clashes, all that. Russia, the Soviet Union was still recognizing Taiwan as part of the People's Republic of China. So that's not news to me, but it's news that China is um, publicly for the first time, not in that statement, there were some some statements by Chinese officials just before that. So the statement um, uh, uh, fixes uh, uh, certain new developments and uh, makes them part of a uh, part of a general, uh, let's say, charter of relations. China will ha- will have Russia's back in um, confrontation with the United States in Europe, and Russia will have uh, China's back in <clears throat> possible confrontation uh, with the United States in a place like Taiwan. So that, to me, was 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 very important. It's it, I, I have to. To to add in the same breath that this does not mean a complete agreement between Moscow and Beijing on uh, even on the issues that are very important for the Russian and Chinese leaderships. China, for example, does not recognize Crimea as part of Russia. Uh, Russia does not uh, support China's claims in the South China Sea. It's important. It's also important that in that same statement, uh, there was a, a reference to the uh, triangular Russia-India-China relationship. There was, it was just barely a sentence, but it's important that the sentence was there. It's important for Russia to, uh, to send a message also to Delhi, but, uh, but to Beijing as well, that the relationship with India to Russia is of strategic importance, and uh, Russia will not compromise on that issue. Yeah. I think the I think um, on the RIC that was tucked into the statement, I think that's becoming more and more apparent that Russia plays a much more active role today with regards to Sino-Indian relations. But coming back to the question, Dimitri, on China and the guarantees, or if you like, the affirmations on Russia's position in Europe. You know, China's been remarkably non-interventionist when it comes to some of its closest allies. So if I think about Pakistan, for instance, in the war with India in 1965 or 71 or 1999, despite the growing uh, closeness between the two countries, China actually never took a position militarily that could have impacted or affected that equation perhaps to a certain extent in 1971, but not, but in, in general terms, not so much. And I was just wondering, when it comes to Europe and the Ukraine crisis in particular, um, do you think that the China, that, that these lines in a statement, for instance, does affirm a, far, a change in the way in which 
China deals with global security and its own approach to Europe? Well, I think it does, but uh, I would qualify that uh, uh, that assertion. Um, I don't think that uh, China intends or Russia expects China to uh, materially support Russia in Europe. Russia doesn't need that. It can uh, nicely handle the issue itself. Russia in general proceeds from the assumption that uh, uh in case it has a conflict with somebody, it has to rely on itself. Uh, no one will come to Russia's rescue uh, or Russia's aid. So that's that's a longstanding principle. We're alone, and uh, we 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 have to be strong to withstand uh, uh, various uh, uh, pressures that uh, come our way, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, what's important is uh, is is a statement uh, from the Chinese to the U.S that the U.S. should not try to split China from Russia, or Russia from China, for that matter. Uh, so China backs Russia's diplomatic position. The statement does not refer to the Russian forces in Ukraine. It does not refer to Ukraine as such, because for Russia, and that's a very important point, the current crisis uh, in Europe is about European security. It may be centered physically on Ukraine, but it's not about Ukraine. Whereas for the West, for the Western media, it's a crisis between Ukraine and Russia. And, uh, it's, it's a, it's a crisis about a threat of war that Russia presents to Ukraine and by extension to the rest of Europe. We have very different optics. Uh, for different reasons. And I think that uh, the Russian optic <clears throat> is actually much closer linked to Russia's uh, foreign policy goals than the, the optics of the U.S. that is more linked to the, uh, to the vision of Russia that the United States, uh, uh, that the United States has and the United States spreads, uh, uh, to its allies and partners and, uh, and, and around the world. So I, and no, China is not going to, uh, to, um, uh, to support Russia materially. But, uh, we, we hear voices from Washington, including from Secretary Blinken, basically saying that, uh, China should, uh, tell the Russians that, uh, they should stop, uh, threatening Ukraine, that the war in Ukraine would be, uh, would be negatively seen in China. Um, and they're basically telling no, just stop talking, uh, that way. This is, uh, this is not going to impress us, impress us at all. We have a different view of what's happening and we have a different view of Russia's policies and we back Russia's proposals, uh, on, on those issues. In exchange, Ru China clearly wants Russia to, uh, to, um, pay back and support some Chinese claims. And I think in the, in, in the recent past, we have seen, uh, Russia doing a few things that, um, uh, that actually, um, make it closer to the position that China takes on, for example, relations with, Ukraine, with, uh, Japan. Uh, there was, a, a case of a Sino-Russian naval exercise during which uh, the combined uh, squadron of uh, Chinese and Russian ships uh, sailed through 
uh, straits be, 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 between uh, the Japanese islands and circumnavigated much of Ukraine, much of Japan. Uh, that was seen with, um, you know, with a lot of concern in, in Japan. And the joint statement was critical. The Sino-Russian joint statement from Beijing was critical on the Japanese government's plans to release some of the water from the Fukushima uh, nuclear station that was damaged in the tsunami 10 years ago, 11 years ago, uh, release it into the ocean. The Russians and the Chinese were critical. A whole paragraph was devoted to that, to that issue. So there's some movement. Uh, on the other hand, the Russians, uh, uh, could see their siding closer with the Chinese as a payback for the Japanese siding more closely with the Americans. And, uh, being on the, on the verge of, uh, um, uh, welcoming the Aegis ashore, uh, systems, uh, in Japan that would present, of course, the most serious challenge to the Chinese defenses, but they would also have the capability of, of, uh, taking out targets in the Russian Far East. So Russia has to respond in some way. So it's, it's a bit complicated, complex and, and all that, but I see some, some movement. Which is the, the logic of two parallel confrontations, I think, has brought the, the, the leaders of Moscow and Beijing to, to decide, as I said just a few minutes ago, let me restate that, that it makes sense for Russia to have the backing of China, diplomatic backing of China in Europe, and it makes sense for the Chinese to have the diplomatic backing of, of Russia in, uh, the, in the Western Pacific. In both cases, uh, Russia, and China, respectively, would be able to strengthen their position vis-a-vis the United States. Now, that's uh, you know that's very interesting, Dimitri. And of course, you know, in being in India this time, you see is the effect of the the relationship with China, the the, the kind of the downward trend in the Sino-Indian relationship has obviously pushed India much closer to the United States. But when it comes to the U.S. and Russia, it stumps those in India because Russia is, of course, you know, the warmth may not be there in that relationship, as one former ambassador wrote recently in an Indian opinion piece. But the the framework is still very much there. So it puts India in an uninfluential position. But, you know, the last question to you as we draw to a close of this podcast, Dimitri, is if Putin's play, to a certain extent, if I can use that term, um, and his attempts at coercion, is designed to begin a dialogue about European security or think about a larger strategic compact, a sort of a lighter version of a Helsinki or something along those lines. Um, What do you think are the next steps in your mind? What do you think, how does this sort of de-escalate? Do we expect a summit sometime in the near future? Is it going to be with European leaders? Do we expect some kind of a light detente between Russia or America? How do you see the next sort of six months playing out. Might be, that might be too long. How do you see the next month playing out? Well, I think that the uh, diplomatic path will be, um, will be well trodden uh, in, the, in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, there were questions. Uh, what would Putin do uh, if his uh, central demands, no Ukraine and NATO, no NATO and Ukraine, um, military infrastructure of NATO should be rolled back to where it was 25 years ago, all that. If those uh, clearly um, 
maximalist goals uh, would not be uh, met. Uh, the West would not concede on those two principal issues as 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 it, as it happened, actually did not concede. Would Putin resort to what Russian diplomats call the military and military technical measures? I think we have the answer now. Now, the answer is, well, the uh, quote-unquote maximalist uh, goals uh, remain for Russia. We will continue to pursue them. But uh, at the same time, we will work on those issues where we think uh, we can come up with uh, agreements that would strengthen our own security, Russian security, and provide for better stability in Europe. That includes uh, uh, the U.S. offer to negotiate on um, intermediate-range nuclear forces, the so-called INFs, medium-range, intermediate-range missiles in Europe. Uh, after President Trump withdrew the United States from the INF Treaty, and Russia, of course, uh, had to withdraw from that treaty uh, in, to follow suit, uh, there is, uh, in principle, uh, a threat of those missiles being reinstated in Europe. They are dangerous because they only take a few minutes, seven, ten minutes, five minutes, depending on where you place them, to reach Moscow out of Europe. Um, Russia has some equivalent that can be placed on uh, on submarines and uh, put the United States in a similar degree of danger. Uh, so it doesn't make sense to deploy those missiles. And the United States, uh, after this uh, diplomatic offensive by Russia, has agreed to uh, hold negotiations on the issue. It's interesting that Russia was offering that ever since Trump had withdrawn the United States mm -hmm. from, from the INF Treaty, offering a moratorium on those systems, and the United States was not listening. Now it is listening. Good. So this is... Uh, this is a plus. This is a gain from uh, from uh, Putin's diplomatic offensive. Uh, on other issues, um, Putin uh, said we uh, we cannot tolerate strike weapons in Ukraine, and the United States basically is saying that uh, they have no intention to uh, deploy strike weapons in Ukraine or to place combat forces or forces in a combat mission with a combat mission. In Ukraine, uh, okay, this is another thing that can be discussed, and hopefully, some sort of an agreement can be can be reached. Or on uh, military exercises, uh, limiting them in scale and scope, geographical locations, all that. So there have been a few um, a few gains, material gains, potential material gains from this diplomatic offensive. On the larger issue, though, the issue of Ukraine in NATO, I think it's very clear now that Ukraine will not get into NATO as long as Russia is against that. Because Russia is uh, has demonstrated that it is prepared, at worst, to go to war to prevent Ukraine from becoming a NATO member state. And the United States is on record. President Biden said it. The United States is on record saying that even if there's a war, even if Ukraine is invaded, even if Ukraine's 
um, territory is uh, taken over by the Russians. The United States will not send its military forces to Ukraine, which means that Article 5 will not apply. Ukraine is not a member, but Article 5 will never be granted to Ukraine because the United States will not, not go to war with a nuclear, with the other nuclear superpower over a country that is of uh, so, let's say, moderate significance to the United States strategically as Ukraine is. So there may be ways of, um, of, um, uh, fixating Ukraine's geopolitical status in a new Europe, but that status will not be that of a NATO member state. So that's, uh, that's where we are. And I think that, uh, in principle, Putin's, um, uh, demands, which, uh, to a lot of people looked outrageous. Although they could not be met in the form that Putin has originally suggested, a, a, a legally binding treaty with the United States, an agreement with NATO, all these forms mm-hmm. are not uh, practical. But then other forms could be found so that Ukraine permanently stays outside of NATO. And uh, the the task of the diplomats and politicians within Ukraine will be to come up with ideas about how to fit Ukraine into Europe's security architecture as a non-bloc member state. Western-orientated, fine. So zones of influence, spheres of influence will not apply. Think of Finland during the Cold War. Think of Austria. Think of, of other cases like that. So it's not, it's, 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 it's not so, uh, how shall I put it? Um, it's, it's, it's not so out, it was not so outrageous of Putin to bring matters to the head and uh, and attack diplomatically attack the, his opponents head on. Now, Dimitri, I think anyone listening to you and tracking this, and there are many in India, um, on the face of it, it actually would seems that by and large, Putin may actually get not exactly what he wants, but he gets some of what he wants, which might, if if these understandings persist and if something major does not happen on the kinetic front, for instance. Uh, but we'll be tracking this in the weeks ahead. We really appreciate the time that you spent with us on interpreting India. Um, thank you very much and, and all the best, uh, Dimitri. Thank you very much, Rudy. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Dimitri Trenin, thank you so much for being with us at Interpreting India and for illuminating us on the trials and challenges of the current impasse. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on our Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening and see you the next time.